I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3, verse 7 through 35 is what we'll be looking at today. It's on page 838 if you're using the Pew Bible. This is the Word of God. Let's hear it from Him to us. Jesus withdrew with His disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that He was doing, they came to Him, and He told His disciples to have a boat ready for Him because of the crowd, lest they crush Him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, the sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Cananean and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of darkness he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness." but he's guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, He has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God... He is my brother and sister and mother. May God bless the reading and hearing of His Word and write its truth upon our hearts today. Let's pray together. Lord, we do ask that You would open our ears, our hearts, our eyes to Your truth. You might speak to us today so that we might be Your true disciples. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Probably everyone who's ever gone to school, has had the experience of being involved in playground games where sides were drawn, teams were picked. Uh, I loved to play kickball when I was a kid, and uh, I was always the first to get picked because I could really kick the ball a long ways. Other games, I didn't get picked first, and so I don't want to talk about that. 
But everybody likes to get picked and be on a team and have a side. And, and in a way, that's what's going on here in chapter 3. The, the lines are being drawn. The sides are being picked. In chapter 1, Mark told us a bit about Christ's authority, and he will continue to do so. Authority to teach, authority over demons, authority over sickness, even authority over nature. In chapter 2, he introduces us to the rising conflict between himself and the religious leaders. The rising conflict with the good news of the kingdom and conventional religious thinking of the day. Those two things are in conflict. And now the lines have been drawn and we see here Jesus beginning the creation of a new community, a new people of God who will embody the kingdom of God. It's not a coincidence that Jesus chooses 12 disciples, not 11 or 10 or 13. 12 is the same number uh, as the tribes of Israel. So what God is, Jesus is saying here is I'm creating a new people of God, a new community of God, a new Israel, if you will. His followers are the people of God. What is a disciple? What is a follower of Jesus? That's the question before us today. How can you tell if you are indeed a disciple or a follower of Jesus? Now, a disciple, of course, is someone who has attached himself to a person, uh, particularly in this case to Jesus, and has their life shaped by that person, by his personality, by his person, and by his teaching. So a disciple of Jesus is someone who is attached to Jesus, who follows Jesus, and has their life shaped by Jesus Christ, by his teaching, by his life. Now, Mark 3 uh, highlights for us several different categories of people. We have indeed the disciples, the twelve that he calls to himself. We have the great crowds that were following him. We also have the demons uh, who testify to who he is. And we, all, and we have the religious leaders uh, who oppose him. And as we look at the difference between these groups, we can see uh, for us highlighted several I find at least four characteristics of true disciples that we can draw from this passage. I want to give you four things today about what makes a disciple a disciple. How can you know that you are truly a follower of Christ? Number one, disciples follow Jesus. Two, disciples listen to Jesus. Three, disciples submit to Jesus. And finally, Disciples obey Jesus. So follow, listen to, submit to, and obey. Now, first off, disciples follow Jesus. Now, there were many people who were following Jesus around, but not all who follow him are true disciples. You have these great crowds, and Jesus says, uh, you know, tells his closest friends, look, get a boat ready so that the great crowds won't crush me. There were so many people pressing forward to, to hear from Jesus and to be healed by Jesus. Verse 8, they, they were following him when the great crowd heard all that he was doing. That's why they came to him. Now, Jesus could always attract a crowd, and he did throughout his ministry, but now all the, all the crowd 
actually became his followers and disciples. There was a group of people who became his disciples, but some of them bailed out on Jesus. Of course, we know Judas, one of these 12 that are mentioned here, he betrays Jesus. But there were other disciples that are mentioned in John chapter 6, people who were following Jesus, who were sitting under his teaching. And Jesus gives a, a, a speech about being the bread of life. And it says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So you had the great crowds, you had a group of disciples, and even amongst those disciples there were those who early on left from following Jesus. What separates true disciples from these false disciples in the great crowds? Jesus appoints 12 there in verse 14, and he gives a twofold purpose for his calling these 12 to himself. Uh, he says he appointed 12 so that they might be with him and that he might send them out. So to be with him and send them out. There were many people who were with him, in quotation marks. The crowds were literally about to crush him. However, the with him that is referred to in reference to the disciples is different from just being in his physical presence. This implies a relationship. The disciples were with him to know him and to learn from him. The crowds, on the other hand, were wanting things from him. The disciples want him. The crowds wanted something from him. And there's a big difference between, between being around someone because you want what they can give you and being around someone because you want a relationship with them. We see this today. You see these professional athletes who make millions of dollars and they always have this entourage with them of people from back in the old neighborhood, uh, just hangers-on who are getting... Uh, uh, a taste of the, the good life as they sponge off their wealthy and famous athletic friend. But as soon as that person goes through all their money, that seems to happen very often with these professional athletes, they are left penniless, having wasted millions, and they don't even have any of those friends left around because the, they don't have any money left, and that's all these friends wanted from them. The crowds were around Jesus for what he could give them. Healing, free loaves and fishes, we'll see a little later on in the, in the book of Mark. Provocative teaching. They say, you know, I've never heard any teaching like this. It was very interesting to people. But the disciples, on the other hand, were there when the crowds were not. Now the question remains, why are you around Jesus? Why are you here at church today? Is it because it makes you look good or 
Uh, is it because respectable people go to church and you want to be a respectable person? See, there are benefits that come with being a Christian, especially in the South. Now, I lived in England for about eight years. Uh, and, and in Western Europe, there is no cultural reward for going to church. So you don't have a lot of people in church, especially in places like England. Uh, if you went to church, instead of people looking at you and saying, oh, well, that's a, a good, upstanding, moral citizen, they looked at you and said, there goes somebody who's kind of crazy and self-righteous probably, a big hypocrite. And people look negatively on, other, on churchgoers. So, because there was that, not that temptation, people didn't attend church. There was no cultural reward. The wonderful thing is, was that the people who were there in church really wanted to be there. They wanted to grow in their faith. They wanted to know Jesus. Not just for what being a church member or a church goer could give them. It's a good question for us to ask ourselves. Are you a follower of Jesus because you want to be blessed? Now, blessings are great and abundant for followers of Jesus. But the human heart and all of us are prone to this, our human heart is prone to worship the gifts rather than the giver. We tend to want the blessings rather than the blesser. And that's where we get in trouble. And we have this tendency to fall into that, of appreciating all the things the Creator gives us instead of appreciating the Creator. In fact, we appreciate those things to the point of worshiping them instead of the Creator. Now, the person who follows Jesus, uh, who wants a good life or a good family or a good job, there, there are many people who think going to church and being a Christian, that's why they're doing it. Now, these are not bad things. They are blessings. The question is, would you still follow Jesus if your life and relationships were not good? What then? Jim Keller says this, A nominal Christian is someone who finds Christ useful to get the things the heart finds excellent and beautiful. Let me read that one more time. A nominal Christian is someone who finds Christ useful to get the things the heart finds excellent and beautiful. You know, if I follow Christ, I can get the good things that I really want. That's a nominal Christian, he says. He goes on to say, A true Christian who is someone who finds Christ excellent and beautiful for who he is in himself. And that is the first characteristic of what separates a true disciple from a false disciple, a, a true Christian from a nominal Christian. Disciples follow Jesus, not just the trail of blessings. Now, the second thing we see is that disciples listen to Jesus. Of course, uh, Jesus did a lot of teaching, and a lot of people heard what he was saying, but not a lot of people listened to him. We see this episode with his friends or family here in verse 20 and 21. It says, He went home, the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. Now the word translated family here is an idiom that literally says those with him. 
and means people closely associated with someone, like family, neighbors, and friends. The ESV translated family here because his family shows up in verse 31. His friends, his family, his neighbors, the people who grew up with him and were close to him, they think he is crazy, that he's gone mad. And the religious leaders are constantly trying to trap and accuse him in his teaching. Disciples, true disciples, are different. They listen to his wisdom. They submit to his word. There's a lot of so-called wisdom that the world promotes, and it's often in conflict with what the Bible says. To whom do you listen? Who informs your behavior? Is your stance on issues of the day shaped by Scripture or by the world? Do you seek to put God's Word into practice even when no one is looking? That's a good test. Am I truly a disciple? Children cannot live on their own, making their own decisions. A child of God acknowledges that condition. I cannot live on my own. I need my Heavenly Father's guidance and wisdom and help. So disciples, listen to Jesus. Thirdly, disciples submit to Jesus. In that same verse, uh, it tells us that his family thought he was crazy and they went out to seize him. They wanted to take control of him. That word means to exercise power or force over someone or something. To have power over, to control somebody. His family wanted to control him. True disciples are people who let Jesus exercise power and control over them. When you let him become your king, you can become his brother or sister, it says. Who is my mother and brother and sister? It's the one who does God's will. That's the one who is my brother and sister and mother. This is more than just obedience. It is a relinquishment of self-determination. And man, we don't like to do that. We want to call the shots in our lives. We want to have control, or at least an illusion of control, because really when you start to think about how much can you as a human being really control in your life, it is practically nothing. You have no control over your life. But we like to give ourselves a sense of control. And the person who's a true disciple says, God, I I recognize that you are in control and I want you to control my life. I'm in your hands. It is giving up the right to be one's own master. It's acknowledging that you are a child. It's to make a vow of unconditional obedience. What is it that you're unwilling to do for Jesus? Are you willing to humble yourself and serve others? Because that's what Jesus calls us to do. He calls us to do many things. Are we submitting to what he would have us to do? You look at the religious leaders here. You know, they're opposed to Jesus. They go so far as to call him actually that he's, he's of the devil. He is evil. And how can someone be of the devil when they're healing and touching people and putting people's lives back together? But that's what he says. But that's what the religious leaders say. And in John 11, we, as, as the conflict progresses, we see what, ha- what, their, uh, what their, their motivation is, what's behind this opposition to Jesus. It says, The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, 
What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. And there you have it. It's nice to see that they're admitting it. That the only reason they're opposing Jesus is because they're afraid of losing their position of power, their influence, their, their uh, nation, their control over the people of Israel. It's a power play. They want power and authority, and Jesus threatened that. Are you threatened by Jesus' power and authority in your life? True disciples lay down their authority and power and submit to his. Now, finally, disciples obey Jesus. Verse 35, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, this does not mean that doing the will of God makes you a brother or sister of Christ. It does mean that if you are a brother or sister of Christ, then you will do the will of God. Don't get the cart before the horse. It's not our obedience that saves us, that makes us a child of God. It's being a child of God, being a true disciple, that causes us to do the will of God. We see here that, I'm not saying be more religious. Now, this is kind of a hard-hitting thing to call into question everyone's discipleship. And, you know, maybe you're sitting here with doubts. But I'm not telling you to shape up and do better. Being religious is not the answer. Look at the religious leaders. They were very moral. They cared about God's law, and they were trying to keep it, at least outwardly. See, being religious is not the answer. Following a set of rules in order to gain God's favor does not work. That's not how one becomes a true disciple. Being a Bible scholar is not the answer. The demons are the only ones who accurately uh, say who Jesus is. You're the Holy One. You're, you're God Himself, they say. But they don't believe, and they're not followers of Jesus, obviously. The demons had great theology, but it did not save them, and it won't save us either. Now, I'm not saying that we have to be perfect, because these twelve that are called to Him, they weren't perfect in any way, shape, or form. In the end, when Jesus is taken by these religious leaders, and when He is put to death, the twelve abandon Him. They do not submit to Him. They do not follow Him at all. They fall and, and mess up. And we do too. Even true disciples can fall into some pretty bad sins. But the mark of a true disciple ultimately is that they repent and continue to turn back to Him. We see that with the disciples. Jesus died. He, they, they, were, they went and went off fishing. Back to where they, their roots, where they came from. But when Jesus appears there on the beach, they run to Him. They, Peter jumps out of the boat. He's so excited. And he's denied Him three times. But Jesus calls him back. And just as we read in 1 John earlier, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's what he did with these imperfect 12. And he does with true disciples. So don't think that being a true disciple means trying harder. It just means continuing to re continually repenting and trusting in the Lord. If your life is not marked by repentance and growth, then you can have no real assurance that you're actually a true disciple. If your life is not marked by repentance and growth, 
then you can have no assurance that you're a true disciple. I'm not saying you're not a true disciple, but you can't have assurance of that fact if your life is not marked by repentance and some growth, like in the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. It says here in verse 13 that he went up to the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Jesus is still in the business of calling disciples to himself. He has done all the work for us. He has paid the price for our sins. He has fulfilled all righteousness so that we can be acceptable to God. And he calls us to follow him, to put down our heavy burdens the sins that trip us up and cause us misery in our lives, and He calls us to take His yoke upon us. It's an easy and lighter yoke. It says something about the unforgivable sin here. When we think about the call of Jesus to be disciples, the unforgivable sin is persisting in unrepentance. He's speaking to the religious leaders who say, oh, He's of the devil and all this work is of Satan. And in a sense, when we say, I refuse to bow the knee, I refuse uh, to follow Him, I refuse to answer the call to to be His child, if you don't believe in the good news of what Jesus has done for you, uh, if you refuse to listen to the Holy Spirit's testimony about the truth of the gospel, then there is no hope. If you don't answer the call to repent, you will go even if you're very religious and moral and know a lot of theology, you will miss the good news. You will miss the salvation that Christ calls us to. The right response is to follow Him, to lay down your sins and to come to Him and and let Him cleanse you. Let the light shine into your life. But don't reject forgiveness. It's illogical. It's crazy to say that Jesus was crazy. It's evil to say that Jesus is evil. He's none of those things. He's a loving Savior who invites you to be His child, His follower. Please say yes to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we pray that we would, all, every one of us here, live a lifestyle of repentance and help us, Lord, to grow in our faith. Lord, we pray that You would help us not to be those who would stubbornly uh, hold on to our own autonomy, our control of our own lives, but that we would yield to You in all things. Thank You, Lord, that we can know that we know You and that You have done everything that we need for salvation. And I pray that everyone here would have a true assurance of that salvation, not because they've checked a a bunch of things off a list of, of a lifestyle, that's very moral, but because they know you, the one true Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.